I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. And this week, we are commemorating the tragic events of September 11th with a conversation about remembering, honoring, and healing through architecture. It is so hard for me to believe that September 11th happened 20 years ago this week. Time has a funny way of blending and bending that flexes an individual timeline. 9-11 seems like yesterday, but January 2020 seems like forever ago. I don't know. You figure it out. I spoke to Paul Murdoch of Paul Murdoch Architects. I'll, I'll keep the preamble brief. Paul and I here are talking about the Flight 93 memorial he designed to memorialize the the field in Pennsylvania where Flight 93 crashed after passengers disrupted the planned path to crash into San Francisco. This is a deep dive into the meaning and purpose of memorial design. Why and how with respect. If you don't know the story, you're about to. If you think you already know the story, you might still learn a few things. Most importantly for me was that this is not about designing luxury, beauty, and style. But all are there. This is about a single purpose, honoring. Remembering the souls lost on a tragic day for friends, family, and a country. We had no say in what happened to us, but we have total control over the narrative to follow. Much of that narrative can be told through this now iconic architectural statement, and you're about to learn more about it with Paul Murdoch, the architect behind it. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check that out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Paul, this is, this is a special episode that we're doing for Convo by Design. And it's, it's in honor of September 11th. So this episode is airing the week of 9-11. And... I think it's really interesting because I can't remember I can't remember a specific time 
when I, I had a conversation like this specifically, you know, we talk about architecture and design and how it makes us feel and how it can affect our emotions and how it can affect our lives and how it can better everything that we do. But the only time I can really think about how before having a conversation similar to this was something that really surprised me. And that's when Kobe Bryant died and all over LA, all over the world, you saw these murals start to pop up and it, it turned into a way for people to share their feelings, to share their grief, for them to sort of communicate how they were feeling at the time. But this is about architecture. And this is about something, I don't want to say that the murals aren't lasting because many of them are, but when, when we started talking about this idea and I was thinking about memorials all over the country, all over the world, many of which I've been to, and it's just interesting the feelings that sometimes can be brought back by seeing a structure or a, a memorial that's dedicated to something else. And what we're talking about today is the Flight 93 National Memorial and then Voices sort of, uh, can you sort of, can you run through sort of the timeline on this and not necessarily into the project because I definitely want to dive deep into it, but the timeline for this and how it came about. Yeah, the <clears throat> the uh, starting at the end of 2004 uh, as part of a international competition, and um, so uh, and, and then soon into 2005, we we submitted it. And uh, it was a two-stage competition. So there were about 1,100 entries in the first phase, and then they picked five um, shortlisted teams. And uh, then our design was selected in uh, late summer, 2005. So, you know, it was still relatively early um, after 2001, 9-11. Um, but, but we were impressed um, that the stakeholders had gotten together, which represented a pretty diverse group from the families to the community, to professionals, the park service, et cetera. Um, and they had taken some time. Um, I, I think this was after, well, I know it was after the World Trade Center competition. And I think it was after the Pentagon competition. So they had taken some time to really deliberate about what the memorial, what they wanted the memorial to be, what the mission statement was. And um, that, that impressed us because, um, you know, the, as you say, uh, when, when something traumatic happens, there's kind of an emotional outpouring. There's a, there's an, a need an emotional need to connect somehow yourself, give something of yourself, um, somehow connect and make sense, or at least, you know, uh, recognize uh, something traumatic. And um, I think, you know, we saw that at Flight 93 with the development of this temporary memorial. 
that occurred, um, you know, alongside of the road in a field overlooking the crash site. And uh, it was similar to this outpouring with, with Kobe's death um, and the death of everyone on that plane. It, it, um, people, leave, people left tributes of all kinds, um, uh, just something personal of themselves that they left there. And then this chain link fence was put up and people were leaving things on the fence and people were writing things and people were leaving plaques and people, I mean, it just, it aggregated into this collection of personal tributes, um, which was very powerful, emotionally very powerful. And, um, you know, so so how does one create a, a permanent memorial that needs to last generations and still have something of that emotional impact? Um, and I don't I don't think it can have the same impact. Um, I think there's a phase of grieving um, that has to deal with that emotional outpouring. And then, um, you know, the, I think one of the challenges for anybody in our position designing a permanent memorial is how do you recognize that, um, but somehow suspend that emotional state enough to be able to um, consider the sort of historic dimension of it um, so that that is sustained over time, that, that historical dimension, while it carries emotional content. So uh, the, a, a permanent memorial, I think, by nature, it has to have more dimensions to it than that kind of initial emotional outpouring. Um, but it can't ignore that. It has to embed part of that in it, in itself, um, because uh, I think an emotion, uh, an emotional experience, is important at a memorial of some kind. I want to I want to drill down a little bit on that and talk about not necessarily the competition part of it. I I definitely want to talk about the competition part of it in a in a minute, but. The project itself, and here's the thing, you know, as a as a native Angelino, as a Lakers fan, we I, I'm drawing the comparison to to Kobe's death and the Flight 93 Memorial because I saw something that was that was really interesting, and you're speaking to it in that this is the kind of thing that brings people together. It you find that commonality, you know, that common ground that isn't that what a memorial is for to be able to sort of stop, put everything else in its place and have that moment, that brief period in time where you can reflect and focus where the, the victims, the direct victims, families have a place in the absence of, of their loved ones. They have a place to go and reconnect where Others who don't necessarily, who didn't have a family member or friend on that plane, you know, I can tell you exactly where I was 9-11, 20 years ago, 
I can mm. tell you exactly where I was. I was living in Los Angeles. I was working in broadcast at the time. I was driving from my home in Sherman Oaks to the radio station downtown. And as I was getting ready for work, this was all unfolding in real time. And I remember where I was and how I felt. And, you know, feelings tend to fade over time, right? But as you designed this, as you, as you, as you ideated this and what you thought it should be in your mind, because you were the, you know, as the creator of, of, this, of this manifestation, what went through your mind? How did, how did, you, how did you define what it is and what it should be? Um, well, first of all, I agree. I, you know, I distinctly remember exactly when I first became aware of what was going on that morning. And, um, I'll always remember that moment, um, immediately felt and said to, it was at our office. I came in and people had the news on the screen, uh, of their computers and, uh, as soon as I said, as soon as I saw what was happening and, and understood uh, what was going on, I, I, I told everybody, I said, the world's not going to be the same after this. And um, so there was this real impact. I mean, a real body blow. And um, I, you know, was, we were sitting watching in our office, just, you know, helpless. Right. I mean, not being able to do anything. And so that was a motivation for getting involved somehow. Didn't know at the time it would be Flight 93 or whatever. You know, it was just somehow as designers, can we do something about, uh, you know, if, if as a citizen, we can't do something at the moment, what can we do as designers? So, um. It, 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 you know, so there, I mean, it was this very emotional uh, day and, and, and following, uh, the weeks following were, were incredibly impactful. Um, so I, I think the importance of this and the personal impact uh, were key motivators for us to become involved somehow. And uh, when the story of Flight 93 unfolded, um, you know, it was, it was a unique aspect to that, that whole day in the sense that they fought back and thwarted this terrorist attack. And so um, there was, a, there were, again, a different, a different aspect to Flight 93. It was a tragic event. Uh, but the family members who lost people, passengers and crew members on the plane, they don't, they don't call them victims. They call them heroes. And um, so uh, I mean, there's something about that story that uh, resonated with us. Uh, there was plenty of heroism in the other 9-11 sites. Um, but this aspect of everyday people getting on a plane and then in real time uh, figuring out what was going on 
voting to come together and fight off the terrorists. Uh, it's just such an extraordinary thing. Um, so all, all of these factors we were taking into account when A, we got involved and B, we were trying to try to figure out what we what we would create to commemorate this. Um, so um, it, it, it had a lot to do with the event on 9-11 and the nature of that event. And it also had a lot to do with where the crash occurred in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, bringing the nature of that place together with the nature of what happened on that event is is really the source of what we tapped to create in, in terms of the memorial. Um, you know, there's uh, the ability in this site, uh, because it is so remote, because it's so rural, um, there is that ability, unlike a, a bustling urban center with all of its activity and noises and commotion. Um, at Flight 93, we had the scale and we had the remoteness to be able to create that, that place where you could step back, as you say, and reflect um, in a way, in a, in a very serene setting, ultimately is what we tried to create there uh, to, to allow you to do that. I think it's interesting too, um, how, how this, this memorial was, was put together. Can you, will you walk me through each of the parts and the significance of each? Yeah, I, I mean, to give you an idea of the overall park, it's it's 2,200 acres. So um, that's about two and a half times the size of Central Park in New York, just to give a scale. Well, one of the reasons it's that large is that uh, it extends up to the uh, state highway, Route 30, so that the entrance to the park could be off a of state road instead of you know the small local rural roads. So when you enter the park, you're about two and a half miles from an overlook of the crash site. And um, so it was very important for us. Um, well, our approach was to design a memorial landscape um, and to, to, to choose the key areas in that landscape to serve as the, as the start of the memorial expression. Um, so the focal point of the whole 2,200 acres is the crash site. And um, it occurs at the edge of this very large field. And the backdrop of the crash site is a hemlock grove uh, that absorbed the inferno of the crash. Um, so that is the final resting place of those 40 heroes that to, in our design would always be the focal point. And while the public cannot go into the crash site, um, it was always our goal to bring the public up next to the edge of the crash site. 
And that's where there's a ceremonial gate for the families that we created uh, that's opened only on 9-11, which is next to a wall of 40 marble slabs, each with the name of one of the passengers and crew members, organized along the flight path uh, just before the plane crashed. So um, that's the first area that we developed. Um, and as I said, that's at the end of this very large field. And the preamble uh, for the mission statement that was part of the competition brief was a common field one day, a field of honor forever. And um, interestingly enough, that was written on a quilt by uh, Captain Steve Ruta of the LA Fire Department before it was sent to uh, uh, the folks in uh, Somerset. Um, so somebody remembered that that had come in with that quote and uh, that became the preamble to the mission statement. So um, that field of honor uh, is a very large land area, roughly circular in shape where there was a coal mine, an open coal mine, uh, open pit coal mine for, for several decades. And so what we did is we created uh, a walkway around the edge of that field and we created uh, the visitor center where the flight path intersects with the edge of that field. And that became the second phase of, of the development of the memorial was everything up on that overlook around the edge of that field that overlooks the crash site. And then the, the last major memorial piece is up by the entrance. As I said, because it's so far away, we wanted something of a memorial feature near the entrance as a kind of landmark or gateway piece that you could see from the highway at the entrance. And that's the Tower of Voices, which is this vertical element, uh, 93 feet tall with 40 wind chimes. Um, and the last memory of a lot of people on the plane were through their phone calls, through their voices. So we wanted to do something in sound in the memorial. And that's the last major feature that's been developed um, is that feature by the memorial, by the entrance. Um, the, the visitor and learning center, you know, there's, there's something to crafting a space for learning, a space for remembering. Uh, it's, what did you feel about the responsibility as sort of the, the curator of what, and I know not specific curator as far as like, well, this item and that item, but as far as the environment for it, what's the responsibility? And what did you wanna make sure was there and was there anything that you want, how did you eliminate the noise? Cause sometimes, you know, as a creator, the edit, and it seems, it seems almost silly to be talking about the edit, but sometimes as a creator, when you're, when you're crafting a space, when you're craft, crafting an environment for a purpose, it's very easy to say, okay, well, I want to make sure and have this there, and this has got to be there, and that's got to be there, and we got to have this, and maybe we'll want to have that, and maybe in the, talk about the edit and how to get it down to its very to its most basic essence. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a great point. Um, 
our memorial uh, does not have a lot of narrative. Um, some memorials do. Ours, we decided to have very little narrative. We have the preamble of the mission statement on the flight path overlook. We have uh, stones that mark the time of the four crashed planes. So it was very clear to us that um, we wanted the memorial operating at a certain level, if you will, um, and that the visitor center would be the place for that narrative. That's the place where people could learn about Flight 93 and what happened that day. Um, so it's a key part of the memorial experience, but it is distinct from most of the rest of the memorial features. Um, our whole process was an editing process for the memorial. Um, it was all about testing what was necessary and what was not necessary to be there. And if we took something out and it still held strong, then we got rid of it. Um, if we took something out and something was lost, we put it back. There was a lot of that testing, a lot of that kind of editing uh, critique. And so the same was true for the visitor center. And um, we, we drove the park service and the exhibit designer absolutely nuts. <laughs> um, there was the conversation that you just uh, described where it had to have all of this stuff. And there were, there were, as I mentioned, the temporary memorial, there were thousands of tributes. There were, there, were, uh, there were all kinds of things that could have gone into the visitor center. And um, I, I was very strong about the essential purpose of that visitor center is to tell the story of Flight 93. And it sounds pretty obvious, but it's very easy to try to say a lot of other things too. And so in, in the end, it's about getting to the essence of what the visitor center is there to do and how it fits in with not only the rest of the memorial, but how it fits in with the museum and memorial in New York and, how it, and what they can say and do with the resources that they had there. Um, and at the Pentagon, ultimately, there'll probably be some sort of interpretive center. So the Park Service, uh, I think, had a responsibility to tell the story, simply to tell the story of Flight 93 here. And of course, with some context of 9-11 and what was happening that day and, but, uh, and, and, and the historic context of that. But they, they couldn't be talking about all these other events that were happening that day. And I said, like, you know, there's people that don't even recognize the fact that Flight 93 happened, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's why the fundamental importance of this place is to tell this story. So um, we didn't have a budget for a large visitor center. So um, 
I said, you know, this, I, this can't be a cluttered space. It can't be one of those museums that's got stuff all over the place like an antique store. Um, so we put, we gave, we said there's going to be one space and it's going to have five walls. And there are going to be two sides to the wall. So you have 10 sides of walls to tell this story. And um, that was the restriction that we imposed um, on, <laughs> on our client um, to, uh, to, limit, to limit the space in order to really drill down to the most important things that had to be curated and, and talked about there. And the other thing is we fought for this to not be a black box um, type of an exhibit, um, which is what was promoted initially. One of the most important things for us was that the visitor center was this integrated part of the memorial and the site. And it was being located on this very powerful place where the flight path flew overhead and the flight flew overhead there at the edge of this bowl-shaped field. And so uh, we wanted to be able, we wanted visitors to be able to overlook the field and the crash site and that be part of the experience in the visitor center. And we also wanted visual continuity with the walkway around the bowl um, and with this flight path so that it needed to open up to the landscape. It could not and should not be a black box. And we also wanted it to be naturally lit so that with the different moods of this natural environment being so prominent in the memorial that it would also pervade the visitor center um, so that, you know, when the light went behind, the sun went behind the clouds, the light dimmed inside the visitor center too, you know, that it's, it was part of the ever-changing uh, natural surroundings. And as you're, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I think of Flight 93 and, and obviously this memorial, it has to come into your mind where, and it's really interesting for me to hear you describe this and define the process and at the same time say that you don't want it to be a black box. And I fully understand that. And I, I, that makes sense to me and I can see why. At the same time, there was this idea that could only have been discovered really you know, through the, the black box and the communications, this idea of let's roll, you know, this idea of the, the moment in time when victims became heroes, right? Which, and again, when whenever I say that, I, I don't I don't say it tongue in cheek. I don't I don't. It has a lot of weight to it, you know. When when you have individuals who are put in a particular situation, it's it's known that they knew they were going to die. They made a conscious decision to do everything and anything that they could, which is so just easily summed up easily simply summed up in two words let's roll 
does does that go through your mind or how does that go through your mind or even what do you do with that as you're as you're thinking about this and I, let me just back up a second and say the the reason for the question i'm genuinely curious about that because what i've learned about architects and designers specifically architects as you craft an idea you know that idea isn't designers design for 10 15 20 years that's the nature of of what they do architects designed for 50 75 100 250 years there's there's a permanence to it and i would think that those two words and that idea behind it let's roll you want that to remain was that was that in your mind and in the mind of the team as you were putting this together um in a form, uh, I, I, I mean, you could probably um, err on two ways with that. Um, one is that it becomes, you know, uh, a one-liner. And um, there was concern among family members that, um, is this going to just get abbreviated to let's roll, right? So there's a danger on that side. Um, on the other hand, there's a danger that you get into too much of the complexity of all of the different things that could have happened or did happen on the plane and all of the different, the 40 different people and what they did, what they didn't do, who led the charge who didn't lead, I mean, all this stuff. Our attitude was to commemorate the collective actions of 40 people on the plane. Um, and let's roll uh, as, an, as a battle cry, if you will, um, is certainly, um, it certainly embodies the action and the heroism um, of those 40 people together. And that's the spirit that we tried to capture in, in the memorial in the sense that um, there, there was a heroism um, of 40 everyday people on this plane. It's not a military victory um but it's it's 40 people that came together in everyday sort of circumstances and did this heroic act um and so um you know you have a kind of a personal uh aspect to the memorial like i said it's not a military campaign it's it's 40 everyday people and um, and yet um, this heroic act has to be somehow um, recognized. So when we started, uh, before we even got the competition brief, we, we started to sketch uh, some ideas and then we got the material. We saw how large the site was um, and realized that um, whatever we were sketching would have been dwarfed by the scale of the landscape. Um, and that would have undermined this 
this goal to create something heroic. So that's when we set about uh, designing a memorial landscape and really working with the land to create that sense. And so when you are at the memorial, there's some very large scale gestures in the land that um, they carry that heroism. It's, it's maybe in a way unique to this place. Um, you know, people express heroism in different ways, different memorials do it in different ways. We, we created a vertical element in the tower near the entrance, but something like that down in the bowl uh, really would have been dwarfed. Um, it's fine near the entrance at that part of the site. It has that kind of, it carries that uh, landmark uh, sort of quality um, and is heroic with these 40 chimes. Um, but what we did at, at the field was um, the flight path is this long entry walkway that aligns visitors with the flight overhead that day. Um, and just that alignment, just people recognizing that at some point can give a pretty big impact. Um, but then we have these two walls through which the, the walkway extends. And those are fairly narrow and tall. And they lead to an overlook of the field and the crash site. Most people, when they first come to the site, they want to see where the crash occurred. So we take them straight out to this walkway. And when they go through that second wall, that tall vertical opening in the second wall, that field opens up in the most expansive and breathtaking way. And it's that, it's that kind of heroic, heroic gesture. Um, and the walkway and the maple trees that, that frame that, that field in this, in this large scale national embrace it's an embrace as a gesture at a national scale, a very heroic scale. Uh, 40 groves of trees that, that circle around that, that field, um, again, in a, in a very heroic way. So um, we're, we're, we're trying to embody the spirit of let's roll, if you will, through the collective actions of 40 people in ways that the site offers as, um, you know, this, the, the, the key to how to express that. Um, we're not trying to impose a new language there per se. Uh, we're trying, you know, this is the place of the crash. Um, so we're trying to frame the places where this happened. We're trying to play, frame areas of the landscape and set um, commemorative and natural experiences up for the visitors using different qualities of the site um, rather than, you know, creating something that sort of upstages all of that. So um, it's, it's trying not to be gimmicky, trying not to have, you know, um, just a quick takeaway that sums it up. It's, you know, this is a contemplative memorial, which also requires the visitor to move through the landscape. So it's both an active way of 
experiencing it while you can commemorate, while you can um, content, have this contemplative experience as well. Yeah, and I think that the experiential element to this is, is one of the things that makes this so special. Um, you know, and it's, it's not, it's not gimmicky, but it's, I, I do think it's interesting that because architecture is a language unto itself and in taking an idea and being aware, I don't want it to be, you know, we don't want it to be gimmicky. We don't want to focus on just two words. Let's roll. We want to, we want to focus on the people at the same time. There's so much that goes, that goes into that and telling that story and crafting that story. Can you talk to me a little bit about the team? Um, all of the participants. And I, I would also be interested to know what the collective experience was like. And to, to sort of follow up on that, I'll ask you now, instead of asking you at the back end, what it was like. Um, because oftentimes with, when there are as many major stakeholders as there, as there are in a project like this, um, what, what if anything gets sacrificed? What do you fight for? How do you fight for it? Um, I, I just, you know, having seen a number of projects, having seen a lot of projects at different stages of completion from ideation to ribbon cutting, full completion, right? With a project like this, I'm trying to sort of run my mind through, and there are major stakeholders and it's more than just money, right? It's, a, it's, it's far deeper than that. Tell me about the team how you guys worked internally and, and how you navigated the, all, all of the, the, the challenges that I'm sure came along with this. Um, how long is this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, it was a two-stage competition. I'm gonna go back to that because uh, the first stage we just entered ourselves. It was my wife, Melena, my partner and I, and uh, one of our employees um, who did it fairly quickly, the first entry was just one board. Um, after we were selected for the second stage, the requirement was to build a team that would be capable of implementing the project should you be selected. So we took about a month to pull the team together. And during that month, we also uh, I, I said, you know, before we pull a lot of new people into this, to develop this, we need to be sure ourselves about what it is we're, we want to do here. We had defined the key memorial elements in board one. The essence of the idea was there. I said, we need to be absolutely clear about what we want to carry forward because as soon as we pull, pull a team together is going to be challenged in different ways. So during the month of, you know, pulling our team together um, and, you know, like doing a national search for a landscape architect, um, looking around the country for different experts, um, as well as you know, working with people that we knew for years here in LA. Um, it, it was very much about sort of um, making sure that the core of our design 
that we understood that well um, and what was valuable to us. Um, so then we brought this team together. Uh, we brought in uh, Nelson Bird Waltz, uh, the landscape architect, who uh, you know needed to be a key partner in the whole process because it is such a landscape-oriented memorial. Um, and um, because we had the core of the idea, we were able to gather this whole team around it. And I'd say the second stage of the competition went very well uh, because everybody rallied around this design. Um, we were able to go out to the site for the first time and then a second time in the spring. Um, and that really tested the design. Not so much the idea as the scale of it, where exactly it got positioned, how to develop certain things. Uh, we really got a lot out of those two experiences, as well as meeting family members for the first time, meeting some of the park professionals, community members. I mean, we got a we got a really good understanding of um, a lot of aspects of the project, which in many cases validated what we were doing and in other cases helped us develop it. Um, once we were selected, um, then it was going to be a matter of how to incorporate, how to integrate the memorial into a new national park. Um, because the focus of the competition was on the memorial itself um, but this is going to become this 2200 acre national park. It needed roadways, it needed infrastructure, it needed a visitor center and ultimately a learning center. It needed a lot of things to make it a park and uh, a national park. And so once we, we got under contract with the park service, there were a whole other set of issues that we had to deal with. Um, involved in that process was the Federal Advisory Commission, which was created by Congress to create the memorial, define the site, and select a design, as well as the families of Flight 93, um, and a task, or, a task force that was comprised of community members and many others. So um, I think uh, there were many challenges um, from land acquisition, uh, you know, none of this land was owned. Um, there was a wetlands on the site that we were trying to take visitors through. And, you know, most, most legislation around wetlands is to avoid them. Um, and so there were many people we had to work with from the park service to you know, fish and game folks, environmental protection uh, folks, uh, the Army Corps, um, and on and on. Um, but um, I think the families for us um, were a key stakeholder in helping us to um, carry our vision forward um, through a lot of institutional challenges. Um, 
you know, the this is an unusual project uh, in the sense that uh, a park is being created from scratch, a new park. Um, it's very design oriented. It's, it's, you know, the whole thing is a designed landscape. I'm not saying that we designed all 2,200 acres, but we, and, you know, key, key large scale elements in that site. And the park service is, is not set up uh, well to do that kind of project. It, you know, they have standardized solutions for, for roadways and infrastructure and visitor centers and that kind of thing. So, you know, it was a learning curve um, for us and it was a learning curve for them. Um, and there were a lot of aspirations coming out of the competition with this selected design uh, that didn't necessarily align with um, institutional framework, let's put it that way. So um, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a cultural uh, alignment and realignment and sustained alignment <laughs> that was very much at the heart of the effort. Um, so um, I, I don't think to a person there was anybody against the project uh, that, that was part of our team or part of the effort to build this. Um, it, it was all about the challenges of how to do it with whatever was available. And um, so uh, there, you know, there have been some compromises, um, but overall, um, you know, our, the, the main core of what we set out to do has been, has been built. Um, there's ongoing work to make it better um, you know, the soils, for example, need to be amended and, and treated properly for the tree, the commemorative trees. That kind of thing needs to, needs to happen and is ongoing. But um, the major features of the memorial have been implemented. And um, I think, um, you know, one of the keys was that we had a very strong, clear uh, vision defined that was a, we were able to carry through as a vector through all of these different bumps and grinds along the way. Uh, so. Last question I have for you, and I really do appreciate the time today. How, how does a, and feel free to say, well, it, it really doesn't because every project is individual and unique. How does working on a project like this, I would imagine that you get so deep in the history and so deep in the in the personal nature of, of what this project is, how, if at all, does that influence and impact the the other work that you do? How did this change you as an architect? Um yes. Um I I mean I, I think it changes you as a person and thereby changes you as an architect. Um, you know, we've had people come up and say, this is so much more than architecture. Um, you realize that, don't you? And uh, it has a very profound effect 
uh, on not only, you know, reflecting on what we've done, but going forward, what do we do now? Um, you know, there's a temptation to like do other memorials, for example. And I'm not sure that's even the right thing to think about. Um, it's, it's like, uh, this is such a, such a powerful and unique experience over for us 16 years. Um, but it definitely makes us look at projects where we can't look at projects the same way that we did uh, 20 years ago. Um, it, it, it sort of intensified how we looked at architecture. Um, I don't know if it's changed it so much as it's intensified it. And, and it's developed dimensions to what we do, you know, in a multi-layered way that um, a lot of projects don't require. So, um, you know, I think for us, we always have to sort of step back with new projects and, and really say, you know, A, is this something we really wanna do and, and understand why? And, and then also understand that it's not gonna be, it's probably not gonna have all of those dimensions that the Memorial Project had, but um, that there may be some important aspects uh, of the project that are, um, are valuable nonetheless uh, to be involved with. Uh, whether that's, you know, something impactful for a community um, or a campus or an individual client. Um, but um, there are values to carry forward from the experience that we look for uh, in a client, we look for in a project um, so that it's meaningful for us and it's meaningful ultimately for the client and their community. And I think that's how we carry this forward. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, Paul, thank you very much for taking the time. Congratulations on the on the project. And, and I, you know, the the congratulations is because as a team, as a from a just looking at it from a from a monument standpoint, uh, from a memorial standpoint, it's it's phenomenal and it's fantastic. And in how much went into it to sort of convey this idea and and recognize what happened in a, in a particular place and time. So congratulations on that. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Paul. It was an honor to speak with you about this. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Walker Zanger and Thermosol for your partnership. And thank you for listening and subscribing to the podcast. Keep those emails coming. Convo by design at outlook.com. I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person at a design event near you very soon. Until then, be well, and remember those lost on September 11th. Remember what it felt like to join together as Americans in a common goal. Remember that regardless of your personal beliefs on every issue, big and small, there's something greater at stake. Remember how we once felt. Remember how we felt after 9-11. Gosh, for years. I remember that feeling. I don't know what happened. Um, but I think we should get it back. And I think part of that road back is remembering. 
Remember those lost on Flight 93 20 years ago this week. Christian Adams, Lorraine Bay, Todd Beamer, Alan Beaven, Mark Bingham, Dura Bodley, Sandy Bradshaw, Marion Britton, Thomas Burnett Jr., William Cashman, Georgine Corrigan, Patricia Cushing, Jason Dahl, Joseph DeLuca, Patrick Driscoll, Edward Felt, Jane Folger, Colleen Frazier, Andrew Garcia, Jeremy Glick, Christian Ulsterholm White Gould, Lauren Katuzzi Grancolas, Donald Green, Wanda Green, Linda Gronlin, Richard Guadagno, Leroy Homer, Toshia Q. Cece Ross Lyles, Hilda Marson, Waleska Martinez, Nicole Miller, Louis Knack II, Donald Peterson, Jean Peterson, Mark Rothenberg, Christine Snyder, John Talignani, Honor Wainino, Deborah Welsh.